The Truth News Network. The news is bad. The future looks worse. People are dying. We're all doomed. But that's only one side of the story. Get the real story with TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. Aren't you glad today that you don't have to choose to live on that side of this equation, that you can choose to live on the upside? You know, the one where it's going to get better. It's bad as it is. It's going to get better. And it's going to get better because we trust in our futures. We trust in our God. We trust in our abilities to discern what the best things in life for us to do are. And folks, I don't think anybody, anybody that's honest at least, would try to convince us that that's not what's going on. We are being bombarded daily by misinformation, by purposeful lies, getting us to believe one thing when the truth is 180 degrees away from that. And it's tough. I got to be honest with you. It's tiring to wade into this every day and just pick and choose and dig and research and find the facts for everything, about everything. But you know what? It's well worth it. Because in the middle of all of this, we find out most Americans are really good people. Most Americans understand the facts in all this stuff. And I think in large part, that we can thank the technology of our generation for our being able to do it. Just imagine what kind of stuff was happening in the 1960s and 1970s. Probably a lot of things that are happening similar to what we're seeing play out today. The difference was our parents, they didn't have this technology. They didn't have instant 24-7 anything when it came to communications or news. We had to rely in my early life, just like my parents did in theirs. When there was television, you had three stations in every market. Three. ABC, NBC, and CBS. And so all the news you got, if you didn't get it from your local newspaper, and every once in a while my dad would pick up a New York Times or a Washington Post, if you didn't get your news there, you had to rely on those three broadcast networks, news in the evening at 6 o'clock Central Time. And of course, you had local news before that. But that was it, folks. There was no internet. There was no cable television. There was no satellites. And so we didn't have instant news. Now, it seems like we have evolved into this environment where the news people control everything. And they do it by telling us creating a story and passing that along to us that aligns with their political perspectives. What can they do to enhance their position in their market? And I know, I know it's crass. It's probably horrible for me to even think people think that way, folks. But as always, as our Lord told us, the love of money is the root of all evil. At the bottom of everything you see and hear on network television in newspaper media, especially on a national scale, everything is money-driven. It takes a lot of money to run a network. It takes a lot more money to put a satellite or two up into space and to be able to hook up to it. And then when you think about the cost of broadcast equipment and technology to make all of these pieces link together, 
you're talking about billions, tens of billions of dollars spread across the landscape of our media and OMG, (laughs) our media. What a potpourri of evilness that is out there. And I'm not so much talking about the people that we see and hear on air. I'm not talking so much about the writers. I'm talking about the ones that put it all together. Somebody sitting in a back office somewhere, not on the camera hardly ever, if ever, they're sitting in the back office and they're pulling all the strings, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You remember that movie? The wizard was a fraud. And he stayed behind that curtain pulling all of these ropes and bells and making all these sounds back there that scared everybody to death. Somebody is doing the same thing in the far, far uh, chambers deep inside these organizations. And then it's all being implemented by the plebes, those people that we see, the ones that write, the ones that do these television and radio and internet broadcasts. Kind of like TNN Live, right? (laughs) No, there's nobody behind us pulling strings. What you see and hear here is the way it is. Thankfully, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of places to go today to get good information. And I'm so glad that we still live in a nation where that's possible, even though there are many out there that want it to be stopped. And they've, they've just took a place in line to be the one or the ones that will and can stop it if it's the last thing they do. They are afraid of the truth and what people knowing could possibly do to their positions of power and authority. And they don't want to let that happen. That's why you see them fighting so hard every day. And yesterday, oh my gosh, yesterday was an amazing day in government in Washington, D.C., and a great news day for coverage of one of the biggest wars underway domestically here in the United States. And I think you know the one I'm talking about. It's between Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and the anointed one, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yesterday in a committee hearing, somebody passed out boxing gloves, and the two went at it. And at the end of the day, folks, Fauci just looked like a a little spoiled kid that got confronted by his mom because she saw him stealing a Tootsie Pop at the 7-Eleven store, and he got caught. We've got that back and forth between the pair. We're going to get into that a bit later. What else do we have for you today? There's some information coming out of D.C. on the Biden family crime syndicate. And folks, you're not going to want to miss this. This too will be probably in our second hour. I, I got to be. I got to be honest with you. I almost, I almost laughed in glee when I read this story about the president and his son, Hunter. You don't want to miss that. But we're going to begin the day today with another one of the revelations that finally we are able to confirm, and it doesn't matter what people try to do to hide it going forward, it is exposed. There was voter fraud in Georgia. There was voter fraud in Georgia. Now, isn't it odd that very few in politics will even talk about in public the almost certain voter fraud that occurred in Georgia's November 3rd election? Nobody's ever hesitated to point to fraud in previous elections, so 
What was different this time? Well, I'll tell you what's different. We now live in the era of cancel culture, of wokeness, critical race theory, and the actual ownership of all usage of words that depict racism of any kind, real or perceived. And folks, the ones who have unfettered and unilateral control and use of those words all have a D, a capital D, following their name. They are Democrats. Stacey Abrams, how can you forget that name? She ran for governor in Georgia, ran as a Democrat, and the current governor beat her. She still, to this day, several years later, has not admitted that she lost that election fairly. In fact, she says quite the opposite. Well, she's a Democrat operative now, and she initiated the election uproar in the Peach State. But sadly, it was not because of voter fraud in November of last year. It was because of the voter integrity bill that was signed into law at the end of March by Georgia's governor. Stacey Abrams went nuts. She began playing the race card before the CEOs of large companies, international companies that have a presence in the Peach State with a presence in Georgia. And of course, that made them her target. She even shamed Major League Baseball into moving the 2021 All-Star Game from Atlanta to Denver. Why? Why would she do that? Well, Abrams shamed MLB for even contemplating having that game being played in a state that just adopted, in her words, oppressive new voter restrictions, principally on African Americans and other minorities. Major League Baseball, what what else could they do? They complied. And when they complied and moved that game from last week, not just the game went from Atlanta to Denver, but an estimated $100 million of what would have been Atlanta revenue from the game itself and the ancillary revenue that merchants around Atlanta and Fulton County would have made. Most of that money, would have gone to African-American businesses that are located in that part of Atlanta. I was just there a month ago. It's a great part of town. It's a great stadium that the Braves now play in. And she, for racial partisan purposes, talked to MLB into leaving and taking that $100 million or so. It may even be more than that. We watched and listened to those election irregularity legislative hearings that happened in the states of Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and in Georgia. One after another, voters in each state swore an oath under the threat of perjury and testified. And they provided hard copy evidence, personal testimony, specific examples, even pictures and videos. Voter fraud happened to some extent in each of these states, but you can't talk about it. You can't talk about it. If you do, you'll get canceled. Where's the uproar, folks, for actual voter fraud? You know, these Democrats from the state of Texas, they jumped on that plane. They're still in Washington, D.C. because they don't want to vote on the voter law. You know that rule of law thing, the way you make legislative business happen? In states at the state level, a member of the House of Representatives in the state, a member of the Senate, 
They all get together, they debate specific pieces of legislation, and then they vote. And the consensus of the people of that state, in this case Texas, is signed into law. Well, they don't want to do that. They want to thwart the will of the Texas people. And they think that's a constitutional duty they have. While they're up there, there are, in their state back home, 600 cases of voter fraud before various courts around Texas. Voter fraud from November 3rd, 2020's election. So where's the outrage and the onslaught of demands from Democrat party leaders to investigate to make certain there was no voter fraud in Texas, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Georgia? Nobody's screaming and hollering for that. Yes, the state legislatures in those states we just mentioned, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, they held hearings. And those hearings were televised. People could see. I saw the testimony. I saw the documents. I saw the videos. Millions of Americans did. But we were not and are not allowed to this day to talk about it. As Joe Biden termed it, voter fraud November 3rd, 2020, that's the big lie, right? We all already know about the exhaustive and extensive election audit that we're told was completed last week in Maricopa County in Arizona. Only a few tidbits have been slipped into public view so far. But they each pretend bad news for Democrats in Arizona and others in Washington. At first blush, folks, listen closely. It appears that Biden did not win in Arizona. So what does that mean, Dan? We'll get into that another day. But let's go back to the east, southeast. It looks like real voter fraud happened in Georgia. As the Georgia Secretary of State's office continues to investigate evidence that show more than, oh, you know, a few votes, 10,300, more than that, 10,300 plus Georgians may have illegally voted in the November 2020 election. The office's chief operating officer defended voters for this. Listen to this. This is the branch of government in the state of Georgia and in every other state that actually handle the state election systems. So that office's chief operating officer has defended voters for violating state election law November 3rd. Here's what he said. The reality is these are normal Georgians who are just trying to exercise their right to vote in a bizarre year. That's Gabriel Sterling, the COO of the Secretary of State's office. And he he told this to a news reporter on Atlanta's WSB television. When he was confronted with an admission from one voter that he had moved more than 30 days before the general election, but he cast his vote in the county in which he no longer lived, which is voter fraud. Last week, it was reported before Georgia certified its election results, President Trump challenged the state's tally that showed Biden winning the general election by almost 12,000 votes out of nearly 5 million. One of the more than 30 arguments Trump presented in a lawsuit challenging the election, it charged that nearly 40,000 Georgians illegally voted 
in a county where they didn't reside. Now, of course, here's the problem. Democrats will say, oh, the court threw that suit out. No, 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 no. They didn't throw the suit out. What they refused to do was accept a motion filed by Trump's attorneys after the suit was filed, and that motion was for that state court to conduct an evidentiary hearing, and if that would have happened, the Trump folks would have presented all of the documents, the evidence that justified the allegations made in the suit. State court judges around the nation, they were probably told that if they denied to conduct these evidentiary hearings, none of the fraud would ever be put on record in any court, so it couldn't be used in appeals. That's what happened in Georgia. Trump's challenge relied on Section 21-2-218 of the state's election code. What is that? Well, it unequivocally provides that residents vote in the county where they live unless they've changed their residence within 30 days of the election. So clear is Georgia's in-county voting mandate that on Friday, fact check confirmed the accuracy of this reading of the law by quoting the Georgia Secretary of State's voter registration webpage. I'm not going to read it to you. If you go to the website, truthnewsnet.org today, the story has the actual quote embedded in the story. So at the time of Trump's challenge, In alleging widespread violations of that section of the voter law, the president relied on information from the Secretary of State's office and the post office, the change of address database, the latter of which identified more than 100,000 individuals who had indicated a move to a new county before October 1st of last year. Mark Davis, who is an expert on residency issues and voter data analytics, He compared the post office data to official data from the Secretary of State's office, and he determined that about 35,000 of those Georgians cast a ballot in the county from which they had moved more than 30 days before the election. What does that mean? You know what it means. According to the law, they voted illegally. That's voter fraud, 35,000. While a percentage of those may have moved only temporarily, perhaps because they were students or they were in the military, circumstances that don't affect a voter's residency, with less than 12,000 votes between Biden and Trump, this bucket of potentially illegal votes could have resulted in a state court tossing the final election results. Nonetheless, because Georgia courts delayed Trump's election challenge case, wouldn't have those evidentiary hearings in time, right? They waited until after the deadline came for governors to certify the election results to go to Washington, D.C., purposely again. Setting a trial on the matter only after Congress certified Biden as a victor, evidence of illegal voting was not ever heard. As was reported just a little more than one week ago, growing evidence indicates enough illegal out-of-county votes will eventually be revealed to exceed Biden's margin of victory. Specifically, Davis, Mark Davis, this expert, re-ran the data in May. He found that more than 10,300 of the approximately 35,000 folks who moved to a new county 
have since confirmed their move was permanent by updating their voter registration to the same address they had previously provided to the post office. In other words, it's been confirmed on a federal database, folks, that these people cheated when they voted. The Secretary of State's office told the media in a nearly one-hour-long interview last week that its investigation into these voters is ongoing. They always say that. Still, the lead investigator, Francis Watson, refused to provide any of the specifics concerning the steps that are being taken. However, last week, after getting a list of the 10,000-plus voters who had updated their registration since the election, WSB, a TV station in Atlanta, a reporter there, Justin Gray, launched his own investigation, knocking on doors to ask voter about their moves. So in a Friday last article, Gray reported on his conversations with two voters. According to Gray, one voter identified as John Stout, S-T-O-U-T, quote, admits he did vote in the wrong county after he moved just a few houses down the street, but he crossed the Cab County county line. So that meant he was supposed to vote in DeKalb County. Instead, he voted at his old address in Fulton County. He claimed he did so because he was not able to update his driver's license during the pandemic. Stout, however, also did not update his voter registration, which he could have done online with the Secretary of State's office. A second voter, identified as Mark Burkle, told Gray that he did move from Gwinnett County to Fulton, but turned in his Fulton ballot at a Fulton drop box. He said, the fact is I live here. I voted here. I voted in this county. It should be legit, and there shouldn't be any questions. Well, the law is the law. I know in a Biden administration, the only laws that matter are the ones that the federal authorities determine they should enforce. The rest of them are nothing but junk. Bonk. Ignore them. Ignore them. When asked about this reporting, This expert, Mark Davis, stressed he doesn't like talking about specific voters, especially because it's possible the voter may not have even realized he was actually casting a Gwinnett County ballot. It's up to our elections officials, he said, and law enforcement to determine who may or may not have violated the law, which is why they are conducting an investigation and why I gave them the data from my analysis. Equally as important, he said. I also want our elected officials to understand these are systemic irregularities that got to be addressed. Concerning Mr. Burkle, folks, Channel 2 put him on the spot the way they did, said Mark Davis. I have deliberately refrained from publishing the data from my analysis, he noted, adding that, quote, I had an understanding with the Secretary of State's office that it would not be subject to open records request until the investigation was concluded. Yet here we are. By the way, Davis also required that the reporter on this story sign a non-disclosure agreement before he gave access to the data for review. That said, Davis continued, when it comes to his residency in particular, I only know the story the data is telling me. 
And November 2020, post office data shows an individual change of address was filed last year with a move effective date of August of 2020, which indicated a move from an address in Gwinnett County to a new address in Fulton County. Further, the absentee voter data shows this individual was still registered in Gwinnett County when he appears to have requested an absentee ballot be mailed to his Fulton County address in September of 2020. Also, while this voter told WSB he had placed that ballot in a Fulton County drop box two blocks from his house, both the absentee data and the vote history data indicate the vote was cast in Gwinnett County. Adding, Davis added, if handled properly, Fulton County election officials would transfer the ballot to Gwinnett County where it was supposed to be counted. None of this is to say that Burkle or Stout committed voter fraud. Stout apparently thought nothing of voting in a county where he no longer lived, and Burkle seems not even to realize that according to the Secretary of State records, he cast a Gwinnett County absentee ballot. Laws don't matter, folks, if they aren't enforced. If you don't enforce the laws, why even have the laws? It's a sham. The public might also poo-poo these admissions as insignificant. But as Mark Davis said, state election law requires voters to cast a ballot in their county of residence for a reason. Each county has unique issues facing residents, whether it's taxing or which local or state officials are going to represent them. For instance, when Mr. Burkle lived in Gwinnett County, he would have voted in the 7th Congressional District. But his new place of residence in Fulton County, he's in the 5th Congressional District now. So he's got a different race in which he's supposed to vote for who represents him in that U.S. House of Representatives. But even if the public shrugs at the significance of all this, Georgia's Secretary of State's office, in the person of its COO, shouldn't spend the casting of illegal votes as people just trying to exercise their right to vote. On the contrary, every illegal vote cast disenfranchised a legal voter who followed the law, including those who moved and undertook the normal burden of voting by lawfully updating their voting registration. Then there were the Georgia voters who moved and like the voters featured in WSB-TV's article, failed to update their voter registration as legally required they are supposed to do in time to cast a ballot in the general election. The overwhelming majority of those 100,000-plus citizens followed the law and did not vote in a county where they no longer live. So what we have then is the Secretary of State's office defending the counting of ballots of those who broke the law and even excusing those violations, while those who followed the law remained unable to cast ballots at all. So you got to wonder how seriously the Secretary of State's office takes the investigation into the 10,000-plus residents that its chief operating officer frames those who violate Section 21.2218 as merely trying to exercise their right to vote. 
So after WSB broke the story late last week, reporters were seeking comment from Sterling and asked Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's communications manager for voter education, Walter Jones, for a statement. Did Raffensperger agree with Sterling's assessment? And if not, would the secretary issue a comment condemning violations of election law and Sterling's disregard for election integrity? Two good questions. Both of those media requests were ignored. They didn't even reply. They didn't even send a text back and say, nope, can't do it, won't do it. They just ignored it. That, too, is a bit suspicious. The public needs to have confidence that the Secretary of State's office is going to take a responsibility for a full and transparent investigation of all election irregularities. Sterling's statements to the press last week, they demand distrust. Sterling's recent comments prove even more troubling when you consider in the context with statements a Georgia Secretary of State spokesperson made to fact check late last week, and it was about the newly revealed evidence of those 10,300-plus likely illegal votes cast in November. Jones reportedly told fact check that, quote, establishing a person's residency is complicated, and it involves a bunch of different things, including where a person claims a homestead exemption and even a person's intent. That's all true. But it ignores the reality that the more than 10,300 voters specifically at issue all made clear their intent to change residencies when they updated their voter registration records, albeit too late to legally vote in that election. Further, while there may be a few folks on the fringe, likely nearly all of the voters who informed the Secretary of State that they had permanently moved to a new county, did so on or about the date they told the post office they were moving, which was more than 30 days before November 2020's election. Ironically, Jones also stressed to fact check that 86% of the voters Davis identified in person showed up in the polling location where they were registered, implying they had some connection to their old residence. But as WSB reported, for one voter, that meant just walking a few blocks to his old precinct in another county. Jones' statement would also suggest that many of the voters on the list purposely traveled a considerable distance so they could go there to vote. Considered in the context with Sterling's comments, the worst spin came when Jones stressed to fact check that federal law requires individualized inquiry into each voter situation, and that calling these voters illegal voters without making that individualized inquiry is a disservice. But then, when confronted by an Atlanta investigative reporter who undertook that individualized inquiry and went two for two with voters who admitted they had moved more than 30 days before the election, the Secretary of State COO derided that discovery. That was real disservice. Voter laws are only good if the voter laws are enforced. Either way, yeah, it's a legal vote, or no, it's not. It's either one or the other. There is no gray in between. So which is it, Secretary Raffensperger? 
or the 10,300 plus and potentially up to 35,000 voters who may have cast ballots illegally in a county in which they didn't live? Are they just trying to exercise their right to vote? Or did many of them deceive election workers by falsely signing an oath affirming they still reside in their old county? So let's wrap it. It's almost certain the vote tallies Georgia included a large number of illegal ballots. The specifics of their impact on the election results are going to hang in limbo, and maybe forever. I think those who participated in this scheme that seems to have played out in other states as well were premeditated. I believe this was all planned. But how do you prove that? And then in this case, how could the fact that November 2020 election results declared some winners did not win and some who did not win actually won? Sadly, when all the dust settles, and if a rigged election shows to have happened, Americans may discover they've been governed by a puppet government put in power through a rigged election. Let me tell you what that doesn't sound like. That doesn't sound like the United States of America. It sounds more like what happens in a banana republic, maybe Nigeria or some remote island in the Caribbean, not the United States of America. We don't allow rigged elections here, but it looks like that may be exactly what happened. Only God can figure what could be done to rectify a fraud like this. Personally, folks, I don't see a realistic way to put the genie back in the bottle. And if that's the case, you know what that means? We have a quote-unquote President Joe Biden for more than three more years. And by the way, how will Americans' attitudes about our government change if this election fraud is proven? Even more important, how can Joe Biden get anything done in government for Americans if and when he's labeled a presidential fraud. Oh my God, I just thought of this. If Biden leaves for any reason, (laughs) OMG, Vice President Kamala Harris takes the reins of government. God help us. (laughs) Talk about going from bad to worse. We would be there, I promise you. Hey, As we always promise you here at TNN, we're going to bring you facts. We're going to dig and find you truths. And we've already talked to you in ad nauseum about the Arizona election audit. It's almost absolutely certain that there was massive voter fraud in the Phoenix area. Far more than enough to overturn those election results for president and vice president last November 3rd there. The big question is... What can be done about it at this late stage? And I think those who premeditated this entire thing, they probably assumed we would get to this point where we were in a catch-22. What do you do? How do you do it? Whatever it is, can you do anything? And they believe, just like I told you, Americans are going to say, you know, it happened, but there's nothing we can do about it. And that means, folks, They control the government for three more years. Oh my gosh. But you know what? In today's TNN Live, it gets even better 
We're going to put on the boxy gloves next, and we're going to the Senate hearing yesterday, and we're going to let you go toe-to-toe with Dr. Anthony Fauci and Senator Rand Paul. Buckle in. This is a good one. Hello? I just wanted to compliment you on your new beautiful furniture. Who is this? Oh, I live in the building right next to, uh, yours. You do? And I'm looking right inside your living room window. (laughs) My what? I bet you've been to Ikea store-wide sale, haven't you? Jiminy, some creepy guy is looking in our window. What? I bet you got that nice leather recliner from Ikea, too. Uh, yes, we get all our furniture from Ikea. Especially right now during Ikea's super mega blowout sale, huh? Jiminy! What, woman? Close the freaking drapes! Oh, I can see in the bedroom, too. Oh, God. Jiminy! What? Hey, are those designer shower curtains? Ah! Shut up, woman! The Super Mega Blowout Sale at Ikea, where you can get everything you need for your home. The stages may be bare, but the show goes on. With the iHeartRadio Broadway Saturday Matinee. Every week, we play an entire cast album and give you behind-the-scenes stories from the show's stars. This Saturday, Moulin Rouge. Welcome to the Moulin Rouge! This is Danny Burstein from Moulin Rouge the Musical, and you're listening to iHeartRadio Broadway. The iHeartRadio Broadway Saturday Matinee. Today at 2 at iHeartRadioBroadway.com. Driven by Mercedes AMG. Driving performance. Welcome aboard Pizza Hut, where our legendary pan and stuffed crust pizzas will fly you to a world of flavors. Taste an all-American pizza sauce, juicy pepperoni, and farm-fresh mozzarella to discover America's mega pepperoni. Or explore the creamy pesto sauce. Chicken and mushroom is in the French creamy chicken mushroom. Fly far above the rest in taste and variety with five new pizzas. And thank you for flying Pizza Hut. Is the insanity making your head spin? Okay, let's sit down and figure this out together. Again, Dan Newman. Well, for me, folks, the uh, making your head spin syndrome... It's been part of my repertoire for years now. It just, it's just continual from day to day. And SMH, I shake my head. I read these things. I listen to these officials in government speak. And it's just... You ask, you ask what are they talking about? I just can't figure it out. They actually believe their own drivel. (laughs) And that's dangerous when you have people in these powerful positions in government, and that's what they do. They believe their own drivel. Now, the battle royal we were talking about was in a Senate committee meeting yesterday when Senator Rand Paul confronted Dr. Anthony Fauci. And you remember Fauci has been confronted numerous times over the past couple of months about What happened in the Wuhan Virology Institute laboratory? And of course, we don't know for sure what happened, but what we now know for sure did happen is that funding for the research that was happening there regarding COVID-19, in part, $600,000 came indirectly from Dr. Fauci. Now, the U.S. government funds laboratory testing all over the world. 
and it has for a long time, that's okay. That's the way that you spread your resources out and you stay on top of the research necessary to keep us healthy. $600 million, that's a lot of money, but it was done in a surreptitious way. It was secretly sent from the NIH to an intermediary not-for-profit. And then that intermediary not-for-profit sent it to the virology lab in Wuhan, China. And of course, it was specifically, according to Fauci, not to support gain-of-function research. Now, what is gain-of-function? That was the big question when this all came up. And Fauci denied it on camera in a hearing. Oh, no, we didn't fund any gain-of-function research that was going on. What is gain-of-function? That's when you take a virus that is appearing naturally in animals, and what you do is you juice it up. You find ways to make it jump from animals to humans. Now, conventional wisdom would say, why would you want to do that in the first place? Well, typically what happens, many viruses initiate in animals, and then later they're automatically going to end up infecting humans. So the gain-of-function research supposedly is to tell us exactly how to treat it once it does jump to humans. That makes perfectly sense if it's happening in the scenario exactly like I just mentioned. But it really appears, it seems, and there were rumors out over a year ago that said this thing initiated COVID-19 through a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology Laboratory. And that meant that it got into somebody in the lab, one of the doctors, one of the researchers, and they infected somebody else, and then bam, we've got a worldwide pandemic. Well, of course, the experts said, there's no way. We have no evidence. That's a conspiracy theory. And just like most government conspiracy theories that involve Democrats that are in office or in in power, they claim over and over and over again for months and months, sometimes years, oh, that wasn't the way it happened. That's a conspiracy. Well, now it appears there is evidence that justifies that happening. The big question when the fight took place yesterday between Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci was the gain-of-function process and the fact that Fauci's National Institutes of Health funded it. And the argument really escalated when it got down to the definition of gain of function. And the whole thing began when Rand Paul, when he got the microphone, he immediately confronted Fauci over his insistent promises in previous committee hearings that we did not fund gain of function. Listen to the first part of this little get-together that happened yesterday in D.C. between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly, and I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. 
that gain-of-function research was going on in that lab, and NIH funded it. That is not... get away from it. It meets your definition, and you are obfuscating the truth. I'm not obfuscating the truth. You are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent that. Could that. Have and if anybody and is lying been. here, Senator, it is you. So you have Dr. Fauci calling Senator Rand Paul a liar. Fauci never took up directly and explained what he was using as his justification for not accepting the fact that the funding was gain-of-function funding. So, Fauci maintained the grants from the NIH to the lab were not gain-of-function funding. Here's the senator, part two. Well, gain-of-function research is defined by the NIH. We read the definition to him. It's when you take an animal virus and you make it more transmissible or more dangerous or more likely to cause a disease in humans. So we presented a paper from the Wuhan Institute by a Dr. Xi where she took viruses, combined two viruses that were not infectious in humans and made them infectious in humans. We quoted a scientist from Rutgers University with 30-year history in cellular biology who said that it was the epitome of gain-of-function research, and all Dr. Fauci could do was sputter, call me a liar, but he never, at any point in time, did he address any of the facts that we laid out that the money he was giving to Wuhan was indeed for gain-of-function. Dr. Fauci seems to, pretty much every time he gets before a committee like this, He uses the double D defense, which is deny and deflect. Fauci, I watched the entire thing. And just so you understand, each senator asking questions in that hearing only had five minutes. And boy, the five minutes between these two was jam-packed. In fact, I suggest if you want to get a good laugh, a good chuckle or two, go to YouTube and find and listen to this entire conversation, if you can call it that. Throughout this thing, it just seemed to me that Fauci really knew about gain-of-function research, and he really knew that National Institute of Health funding went to the Wuhan laboratory for that purpose, but he's running away from it. Listen to him. Yeah, he has a significant conflict of interest. Since he was indeed at the top of the food chain and that he did approve funding to the NIH, to the Wuhan lab, that's that's not even contested. He knows that he, he approved the funding. All he's saying is, oh, well, the research now doesn't meet our definition. But when you read the NIH definition of gain of function and you talk to other scientists, they're saying it's the epitome of gain of function. So yes, he is dancing around the truth. Why? Because if this disease came from the lab and they were funding gain of function, guess what? There's some, at the very least, moral culpability he has for the beginning of the pandemic. But if you go back to Fauci's statements in 2012, He said that the research was worth it even if a pandemic should occur. Even if a leak from a lab should occur, the research was worth it. That, to me, shows incredibly bad judgment. It just always seems to me just, I can't believe it. It's uncontroversial. It's uncontroverted that these Democrats forget that YouTube, Internet, and video cameras are abundant everywhere. And everything they say in public is going to be put in a record that's going to be able to be retrieved 
And in any case in the future, when something especially controversial like this comes up, somebody's going to go back and dig up in the annals of history and find what you said and what you meant then and what you lied about then or what you're lying about now. So typically, here's how it works. When you get busted as a politician, the media outs you. Oh, I mean, they'll pile up on somebody that gets, gets caught in a lie. Well, that's what they used to do. So 20 years ago, in a case like this, I mean, the media would be all over Dr. Fauci. They would do more digging. They would find out and bring to their readers and listeners and viewers all of the other times that Fauci was caught lying. What about the media this time? This is interesting. You know, when you look at the so-called objective sources of news, they played only one side. They didn't look at all. But this is sort of the problem we have. Fauci controls all the funding, and the media is all on his side. And so you really, nobody questioned what I had said. They just broadcast that Fauci called me a liar. So name-calling became the issue of the day for the left-wing media. Nothing Fauci says today surprises me. If you've been a regular here at Truth News Network, a regular here at TNN Live, you've heard me, I mean, throughout the last year especially, calling for Fauci to step down or be fired because he is not a truthful man. He may be in his personal life, but I really think the more he opens up and says more about things like in this hearing yesterday, I'm beginning to think he really is not just a liar, but a pathological liar. What's the difference? Well, a pathological liar really doesn't understand their lying. They just do it. It's part of their nature. It's become part of their personality. And for a man in his position with so much power and so much say-so and things that are critical, I mean, we're talking about life and death determinations every day in the life of Anthony Fauci. And we're going to end it with this. Think about this. Here's a guy that he determines billions of dollars of research. Do you know that our CDC has a multi-billion dollar budget every year? Not millions, billions. So here's a guy that sits at the top of the heap. Now, he is over the National Institutes of Health and just one infectious disease division, technically. But he is the mover and shaker throughout the halls of the CDC. He's the guy. He's the anointed one. And we have a guy that's over that much money funding that much medical research. And look where it's got us today. I mean, the news is out overnight. The infections, by far the percentage of the new COVID-19 infections over the last week or so, have been at the Delta variant kind. And now we're hearing that these masterful, amazing three vaccines are not as effective against the Delta variant as they are against the original COVID-19 infection. In fact, a little stat slipped out yesterday we shared with you. Last week, the numbers of deaths at the hand of COVID-19 in the United States during last week, more people died of COVID-19 infection and complications last week that had been vaccinated than people died last week who had not been vaccinated. 
Now I'm going to repeat that. More people last week that had been vaccinated for COVID-19, one of the three, more people that died last week had been vaccinated than people died last week who had not. Something is not right with this. Something's going on. And they need to get their arms around it. And what spooks me, folks, is I think they may already know about it and understand. Gosh, it's like every day some new travesty, some new revelation comes out that just put into question everything or most of what we've been told by these experts in the past. That's spooky. That's really scary. And it's it's scary because we're the ones that are in the bullseye. It's all about us. We're the targets. And then you have these nut jobs from Texas that got on these two jets and they flew up to Washington, D.C., flaunting the fact that they who they are. They're on a private jet for a couple of hours. Nobody wore masks. And six of them now have been confirmed to have COVID-19. They were confirmed after they got to D.C. Every person on that plane had been vaccinated, but they've got covid That calls into question the efficacy of the vaccinations. What in the vaccines isn't working? Something isn't. So are we talking about now the same scenario in which we deal with because of the flu vaccines? It's just automatically understood. They work sometimes, sometimes they don't. You get the flu shot, maybe you're going to get sick. Well, you're not supposed to get sick if you get a vaccine. You're not supposed to, but it happens every day. We've normalized the fact that it happens with the flu. Folks, the flu very rarely kills people. This thing, this COVID-19, slightly different. Well, 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 let's move on. What about information coming out about President Trump and his son, uh, President Biden, excuse me. I'm sorry, Mr. President, I didn't mean to insult you. President Biden and his son, Hunter. We got a little bit right here about it, but we're going to get into it deeper a little bit later in the show. White House Communications Director, you've seen her, you may not know her, Kate Bedingfield is her name. Back in 2020, just a year ago, she told reporters that Hunter Biden laptop stories were nothing more than Russian misinformation. And she accused conservative news outlets of misinformation yesterday. Listen to this. She told everybody, as a White House spokesperson, that Hunter uh, Hunter Biden laptop stories were nothing more than Russian-planted misinformation. Yesterday, Bedingfield came out and she accused all conservative news outlets of misinformation on vaccines. So she went to that infamous television network, the one with all that credibility, MSNBC. And she was on with The Morning Show, the greatest ones there are. That, of course, is Morning Joe. She told Mika Brzezinski, Joe's compadre, that there are conservative news outlets that are creating irresponsible content sharing misinformation about the virus. And she told Joe or Mika that social media platforms should be held accountable for allowing them to do so. 
In October last year, she was then Deputy Campaign Manager and Communications Director for the Biden campaign. She told reporters that stories about Hunter's laptop were Russian misinformation. She accused Donald Trump specifically, I think we need to be very, very clear that what he's doing here is amplifying Russian misinformation. What have we told you from the very beginning of TNN Live? When the left, anybody on the left, when they're screaming and hollering and they're waving around their right hand, they're holding something up. Look at this. Look at this. Listen to this. Listen to this. What you need to do is forget about what they're screaming about. Because what's really going on isn't in that right hand. It isn't what they're screaming about. It's behind their backs in their left hand. Typically, when the left scream and holler blaming anybody on the right about anything, the left is already doing what they're blaming the person on the right of doing. The Biden campaign, they applauded social media companies like Twitter and Facebook for their suppressing of stories about Hunter's laptop. Remember, Facebook wouldn't even let the story from the New York Post that broke They broke it there with all of the facts about this. They wouldn't even let users, social media users, repost any or part of the story from the New York Post. So after the campaign, Hunter Biden revealed that he was already the target of an FBI investigation. So stories continue to come out from the laptop based on emails documents that reveal the web of Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings and his dad's connections to some of those, contradicting his claims not to know about his family's business dealings. That, of course, is about the president's claims. Hunter has never one time denied the authenticity of the laptop, which he took to a repair store in Delaware and abandoned. He then said on camera on some news show that he didn't know anything about that laptop. He didn't remember ever, and somebody else could have taken it. And, of course, that was part of this conspiracy that they put together to try to pin it on Russia, creating an entire laptop hard drive with all of this stuff on there. And then, of course, last week, you didn't hear much about it. We mentioned it here. A signature authority, the number one of all time in the United States, was hired to validate the signature on the receipt given by this computer shop to the person that dropped this laptop off. And guess what? 100% it was Hunter Biden. (laughs) So they leave out these little bitty things that will give us truth and we'd understand and believe, well, Hunter actually did have this laptop and he did drop it off, why in the world he would leave it there, nobody knows. But it is, I'm telling you folks, it's full of nastiness, really bad things in Hunter Biden's life. And I'm going to tell you this, I don't know if he still does, I hope he doesn't, I hope he got straightened out. But folks, when the contents of that laptop were put together, the video, he was in a bad way. He was a flaming, drug-addicted young man. Hopefully he's through that. But that doesn't mean he's through with all of the other bunk involving his dad. Back in a minute. From McAllen, Texas to Berlin, Germany, the universal language is truth on TNN, the Truth News Network.
today on Hey Culligan, softer equals better. Here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy, I just cut myself on a cable knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey, Ed Itchy in Idaho. Yes, the Culligan High Efficiency Water Softener will make that thing so soft, it'll go from cable knit to cable knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months at participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. I'm a Verizon engineer, and today we're turning on 5G across the country, including right here in New York City. With the coverage of 5G nationwide and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of ultra wideband. It will change your phone and how businesses do everything. I'm proud because we didn't build it the easy way, we built it right. This is the 5G America's been waiting for, only from Verizon. 5G ultra wideband available only in parts of select cities. 5G nationwide available in 1800 plus cities. You know, what's interesting is um, conservatives in the nation are worried about where this administration is taking us, this new wave toward far-left policies in our government. In the middle of all of that, we need to go back and just kind of hone in on what made us who we are. Capitalism, free market systems, free freedom for all, liberty and justice for everybody, innocent until proven guilty. But for the purpose of this part of this conversation, let's talk about the open marketplaces. You know, stuff is effective and it works when it actually has value, a perceived value from whoever the consumers of it are going to be. No matter if it's an idea, if it's a process, if it's a, uh, an education class or some theory, if it can't be put into practice, if it's not something that people want, the free marketplace, it'll make it fail. And it should fail. The marketplace should be full of things that are good for people. People perceive they're good for them and they want to be a part of them. Well, what's happening in this woke environment in which we live, the free market system, the capital, capital markets and the process of capitalism is making a lot of things work good but it's also causing a lot of others to fail. Guess who is failing? Netflix. Netflix lost a half million subscribers here in the U.S. and in Canada during the second quarter in a surprising consumer rebuke as they continue to embrace left-wing politics and woke content. And by the way, that includes a new slate of programming put together and brought to us all by Barack and Michelle Obama. Half a million subscribers gone. So this mass exodus, it also reflects public disenchantment with paid streaming services in general, but particularly Netflix. 
as Americans are growing weary of the rising prices and overhyped content of Netflix while embracing other forms of entertainment post-lockdown. Let me tell you what, the pandemic lockdown, it educated all of us about time and our time usage. Netflix said it lost 430,000 subscribers domestically for the period. The first time it has bled subscribers in two years when it lost 100,000 during the second quarter of 2019. Wall Street views these subscriptions as the key indicator of Netflix's financial health because that's where they get all their money, folks. It's the best gauge of the company's future cash flow. So in its earnings announcement, of course, Netflix came up with the cause. They had to tell everybody why they lost almost half a million subscribers. They blame that loss on the seasonality and the already large size of its North American customer base. They made no mention of its increasingly left-wing content as well as the openly partisan public positions its executives have taken in recent months. And I wonder why they've done that. Why have they gone far left? Well, hey, why did they cut that multi-million dollar deal with Michelle and Barack Obama, those folks are far left. So the co-CEO of Netflix, a guy named Reed Hastings, he donated three million bucks to help California Governor Gavin Newsom fight off this recall effort he's in the middle of. The largest amount at the time to the Stop the Republican Recall Fund. Both Hastings and co-CEO Ted Sarandos backed Joe Biden's bid for the White House. Earlier this year, the Obamas announced they're turning the migration and refugee-themed novel Exit West into a movie for Netflix as part of their overall deal with the streamer. Wow, that's exciting, isn't it? And the former first couple recently released a 10-part animated series, We the People, which is a woke reimagining of schoolhouse rocks. I got to be honest with you, I can't get excited about seeing either one of those two on any television show. It has nothing to do with them personally other than their political partisan hackery and their animus and angst against people that aren't of their same ilk. Now, they used to just be African American, but now they're wealthy African-Americans, which means they can look down on people that aren't their skin color and aren't of their political ilk. And they do that and make it very much in your face. A recent survey showed nearly a third of respondents are planning to cancel the streaming services they're currently using once the U.S. fully reopens. Among those seeking to cancel their streaming services, 46% said Netflix is getting the axe 34% said Hulu, and another 34% said Amazon Prime. Many also said they were unimpressed with hype shows like Tiger King, I Care A Lot, and Bridgerton. I've never watched any of those, and I'm a Netflix subscriber. I will tell you this. Netflix came in a really good spot in my life for a period of time. Five or six years ago, I spent, let's see, I spent 62 days in Europe. And, I, and I, I was centrally located in Zurich, Switzerland. Well, Zurich, Switzerland doesn't have its own language. People there speak a multi- multiple languages, English, French, Italian, German, 
are the four main ones. And then there's a dialect up in the mountains of Zurich where the natives speak another thing. It's kind of a combination. But a lot of people there, when you go into a restaurant or a store, a lot of people don't speak English. That's not one that they choose to speak. And so that means television's that way. So if you're in a hotel that far away from home in the evenings after doing business and having dinner, you want to watch Fox News. You can't do it over there. It's not over there. And I did not know this before I went, but DirecTV, which I was a subscriber in the U.S., and I had the online stuff too. When you're in Europe, it's a different satellite. You can't get it over there. But what you can get is Netflix online. So I was able to watch some movies when I was over there. But back here now, I don't spend much time on Netflix. In fact, I don't spend as much time, near as much time on television as I used to. So what are you getting at, Dan? What I'm telling you is a lot of things are changing in the United States. Consumer thoughts and processes and what we like and what we don't want to have consume our lives. That's all changed. Circumstances have changed it. And so many Americans have found out we don't necessarily need these things that we thought we needed. And Netflix, I mean, come on, folks. We all vote with our wallets, right? 430,000 subscribers said in one quarter, we don't need Netflix anymore and we don't want it. So there's a trend going in that direction and we're going to keep our hands on it. Just stay awake. Maybe you ought to rethink your subscriptions. I have Prime Video. I have Netflix. I don't use Hulu and I don't know what other ones I have. Of course, I have Apple, but I don't even watch Apple very much other than I'll go to Apple Podcast to make sure the podcast from this broadcast every day is put up there. We'll keep you posted. You watch. Learn for yourselves what you should keep and what you shouldn't. We do have some COVID-19 information today. Not a lot, not like yesterday. But this came out this morning. More people died from being vaccinated against the disease than the illness itself in Scotland. A Public Health Scotland report shows COVID vaccinations caused an average of 920 fatalities averaged a month. This figure exceeds the monthly average of 866 people who died from the virus alone as of June 23rd. A total of 5,522 passed away within 28 days of getting a vaccine dose between December the 8th of 2020 and June 11th this year. Pfizer's shot caused 1,877 deaths. AstraZeneca's, 3,643. Moderna's, two, according to the report. Now, this is in Scotland alone. It was revealed this surprising finding after receiving dozens of Freedom of Information requests, and they decided it was best to just give the facts disclose the data frequently in its regular reporting, kind of like our CDC does in the VAERS report they put out every Friday. It's buried on their website, but you're going to get it here every Friday. The answer to your question, 596 deaths involving COVID vaccines have been registered where there was no pre-existing medical condition between March of 2020 and January of 2021. Between December 8th of 2020 and May 28th of 21, a total of 3,752 people died within 28 days of getting a vaccine in Scotland. 
when comparing the number of deaths from the vaccines in Scotland over six months, it exceeds the numbers of deaths recorded from the virus over 15 months in Britain. Did you get that? Comparing the number of deaths from the virus vaccine nations in Scotland over six months, it's more than the deaths recorded from the virus itself over 15 months in all of Britain. Namely, 3,752 patients died from the virus in Scotland. 3,589 died in England from the virus in the 28 days ending June 2nd. The Scottish data comparison, it's overwhelming since vaccine-related deaths are more than those caused from the virus infection by at least six times. Have you heard this story anywhere else? You would think that Fauci would be, um, he would be promoting a pause, a reconsideration. Let's rethink this stuff. In Scotland, folks, more people have died directly from the vaccinations than during this 15-month period. The total number of people who have died from COVID-19 in all of Britain. When it quacks and waddles, it's always a duck. And the duck is waddling. And <laughs> I see it. (laughs) I think you see it. Does Dr. Fauci see it? Does Joe Biden see it? Does Jen Psaki see it? If they see it, folks, they're not being truthful to us. That should scare us more. On top of that, folks, another prestigious World Research Institute in France released a study a few days ago that highly recommended the use of the drug ivermectin in treating the illnesses caused by the virus. It was a study released on July 12th in Embomolecular Medicine. Scientists from the French Pasteur Institute suggested that that drug, ivermectin, it's an antiparasitic drug. It's been around for decades, kind of like hydroxychloroquine, huh? most popularly used against parasites such as scabies, lice, and other skin condition, can improve the clinical condition of SARS-CoV-2 infected patients. According to the research, as the researchers gave SARS-CoV-2 infected hamsters the ivermectin drug, they figured that it can impede the inflammation of the respiratory tract and the symptoms which result from that and offer protection against the loss of smell. My wife, when she got her bad case of COVID, she lost her sense of smell. I thought that, and I still do. It's kind of strange. The report continued. Here we show that standard doses of ivermectin, an antiparasitic drug with potential immunodality activities through the collagenic anti-inflammatory pathway, prevent clinical deterioration, reduce olfactory deficit, and limit the inflammation of the upper and lower respiratory tracts in SARS-CoV-2 infected hamsters. The study supports the use of immunomodulatory laboratory. It's I-M-M-U-N-O-M-O-D-U-L-A-T-O-R-Y. Immunomodulatory. 
Drugs like ivermectin. (laughs) It supports them to improve the clinical condition of the infected patients. So what does this all mean? Well, these guys at the French Pasteur Institute, they weren't the first to recommend ivermectin as a promising therapy against the virus. Now, why wouldn't Fauci recommend it? Why wouldn't he recommend hydroxychloroquine? Well, because they're not new. Uh, They've been around a long time. That means the patents have expired, which means they're in general distribution and you don't have to go to the original drug company and pay out the wasu to buy them. Now, is that a fact? I don't know if it's a fact, but give me another logical explanation. Give me one. If you want to give me one, call me, 866-37-TRUTH, 866-378-7884. But like other treatments, such as hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, which has gained really good results in a bunch of different real-world scenarios, the WHO and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, they have firmly dismissed the use of ivermectin in virus-infected patients. Why is that? Well, the current evidence on the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19 is inconclusive, they say. Until more data is available, WHO recommends the drug only be used within clinical trials. Exactly what they all said about hydroxychloroquine. That works, folks. I promise you it works. It's worked in my home. It's worked in my family extended. It's worked in friends and other family members. And it works. It works, and it's safe. It's been around since the 50s, treating immunology problems in people. But this is another thing. Nobody wants to talk about this. None of the media want to get into it. Nobody's standing up and asking Fauci, hey, look, what about this test? What about this trial? What about the results? What about these numbers coming out of Scotland? where people there that are getting AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccinations, more of them are dying than people are dying from COVID. Last week here in the United States, more people died that had vaccinations, more people died of COVID that were vaccinated than died from COVID that had not been vaccinated. None of this plays into the political thuggery that is going around and has been perpetrated and lifted up to keep us scared, keep us dependent on the government, and shuts out any conversation that contradicts the storyline that's been embraced by the far left. You know who you haven't heard about in a long time? The Gates. Bill and Melinda. Now, they're in the heat of a pretty nasty divorce right now, and it's a high-dollar one, as you know. But this just popped up. I picked this up late last night. In December of 2019, it slipped into the public eye that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they were funding a project that aims to store a person's vaccination history in a dye pattern that's invisible to the naked eye, and they administer it under the patient's skin. This specialized dye, which would be administered along with, oh, a vaccine. Hmm. Go figure. 
It could allow inpatient storage of their entire vaccination history with no need to carry a passport or paper. The researchers suggested that this new injection method would primarily help developing countries where traditional medical records are rare or they don't even exist. But in this new COVID era, where most governments are talking specifically about exercising greater vaccination control over their populations, the MIT project that the Gates family funded takes on new significance. Storage, access, control of medical records is an important topic. Many possible approaches. That's according to Mark Proudsnitz, Chair of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at Georgia Tech, and they weren't involved in the research. He said this study presents a novel approach where the medical record is stored and controlled by the patient within the patient's skin in a minimally invasive and elegant way. I don't know why he would choose the word elegant. Sticking something in under your skin and putting it there, a dye, a specialized dye, doesn't sound too elegant to me. Nevertheless, this has been on the drawing board since 2019, and it's out there, folks. Very few things that is funded by uh, the Gates Foundation around the world, very few things there aren't pointed toward significant and specific outcomes expected. And I just wonder what the expectation is and what the plans were for this when the Gates wrote their big check. You know, it's kind of odd, but something negative, really negative, has happened to the Americans over the last year and a half. Life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped by a year and a half in just a year. This decrease at birth from 78.8 years to 77.3 doesn't seem large, but it is large, folks, in the big scheme, in the context of why. It was largely attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic. This decline in life expectancy can primarily be attributed to deaths from COVID-19. COVID deaths accounted for nearly 75% of that decline. More than 609,000 Americans have died in the pandemic so far. Roughly 375,000 of those lives were lost last year. That's according to the CDC. The report that details the statistics came from the National Center for Health Statistics, which, by the way, is part of the CDC. Researchers used death certificates received and processed by the center, as well as birth records and population estimates. A rise in unintentional injuries, murder, diabetes, chronic liver disease, cirrhosis, were named as other contributors to the life expectancy decline. It was sharper than a provisional estimate of the first six months of last year. According to the new full-year provisional estimate, life expectancy for males has declined nearly two years. Now we're expected to live only to an average 74 and a half years, while females saw a decline of 1.2 years to 80.2 years. The male life expectancy dropped to a level not seen since 2003. Female is the lowest since 2005. That's one of those stories that we bring to you for information purposes only. Is there more to it than we're talking about? Probably there is, 
probably uh, the details, if we knew them all, would maybe be a little bit different. But still, we're going to bring you these facts that come from reputable operations and organizations and let you draw your own conclusion. But I think maybe just put a notch up there and just realize, hey, life expectancy went down last year. Everybody feels it's because of COVID. Let's keep our eyes on it going forward. You know, something we don't talk much about here, we don't talk much about it in the United States, is um, the slant that is ever growing in this nation of anti-Christian ideas and thoughts and actions. Now, in the past, we only we only put such things about religious persecution. It was basically coming from Christians, or it was allegedly coming from Christians for people of other religions. That's where Islamophobia, the term, came from. Muslim people were persecuted, and they still are. Christians have always been persecuted, historically since Christianity was invented. And it was invented when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected and began Christianity. There's always been persecution. But here in the United States, the last place you would think it would be, and probably the second to last place, would be somewhere in the UK, the United Kingdom. But in Western Australia, folks, it's really getting bad. Listen to the story coming out of um, a town. I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, it's in Western Australia about a Christian group, very successful, reaching a lot of people with the cause of Christ. But listen to what they're facing from their government. A Christian organization that campaigns against homosexuality, abortion and voluntary assisted dying is threatening legal action after being told they can't use a taxpayer-funded town hall. It's likened the actions of the state government to the Chinese Communist Party. Here's state political editor Jeff Parry. Martin Isles can pull a crowd wherever he goes, often with a standing ovation. We are called to be soldiers for a fight that the, for which the victory is assured. The boss of the Australian Christian lobby fills auditoriums around the country, but attempts by the ACL to hire government-operated venues in WA have hit a brick wall. Martin Isles says it's solely because they are Christians. Because what happens at these events is we read the Bible and we talk about the Bible and they have said that you Christians are not welcome and it is in the policy because you disagree. The concert hall was the first venue to refuse the group. Now the Albany Entertainment Centre has said no. Both are operated by the Perth Theatre Trust whose policy states hire shall be refused if the keynote speaker holds views that seek to create or increase animosity towards a particular group or where the content does not represent the views of the West Australian government. I certainly think that if you were in China and you disagreed with the government, uh, they might come after you or they might cancel you, uh, but it's not the sort of thing I would have expected in Western Australia. The city of Albany tips $400,000 into the entertainment centre upkeep and can't understand why the government would turn away a paying customer. I don't think it's um, fair and reasonable that someone who is doing something that is entirely legal uh, is prevented from, from doing so. Arts Minister David Templeman is uncertain how to respond and is taking legal advice. I would like to avoid being the minister who steps in all the time with regard to censorship matters. I don't think that's a role for the Minister for Culture and the Arts. A Bunbury-based LGBTQI group says the ACL is a hate group. 
very anti-LGBT, very anti-transgender, pro-conversion therapy. The Australian Christian lobby is no pushover when it comes to push and shove. It raised $2 million to fund a legal challenge by rugby player Israel Folau, who was sacked for comments he made about gays going to hell. There are now calls to cancel an ACL function in Bunbury. If it does go ahead, we will be protesting. Jeff Parry, 7 News. So here we are in the United States, and we're facing similar challenges against Christianity. But uh, when it happens by our government, that is the exact purpose that our forefathers wrote the First Amendment of the Constitution. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and religious freedom. Everybody has an unfettered right constitutionally to worship how they want to. But in Western Australia, in the Perth area, they're doing the same thing that we see working out more and more and more here in the United States, and it's not a good thing. It's where the government is stepping in and using authority that they don't have authority to do. According to the U.S. Constitution, freedom of speech cannot be censored. It cannot be abridged. And if it is, the person or persons who do it are doing so against the law. Here we go again, folks. Here's Dan getting on his bully horse, and he's saying, we've got to have our government enforce the rule of law. It doesn't matter if it's local, state, or federal. Our Law enforcement people from top to bottom have got to quit choosing which laws to enforce and which ones to ignore. And what has been happening, it started out very slowly back in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected to his first term in office as president. It started then, but it's quietly been escalating. It's it's at fever pitch now. Now, that happened in Western Australia. Let me tell you about a case that's going on even right now today in the good old USA. A high school football coach, I think he's from Oregon, he may be from Washington State, in 2015, a football coach now, public school, at a football game, after a football game, this coach had been doing this for a long time. He's a Christian. And he didn't do anything involving any students He didn't ask anybody to join him after the game was over, after the talk with the players. He would go to the middle of the football field, drop to one knee, and pray quietly. He never engaged with any other people doing it. Well, he was warned by the county school board to stop doing it. In other words, they came out as a government entity and told a private citizen even though he was an employee of the school board. But nevertheless, being an employee doesn't abridge your First Amendment rights, freedom of speech. He wasn't trying to involve or get anybody else in there with him. He wasn't preaching. He wasn't even talking about anything with anybody. He was just there dropping to the knee and saying a prayer. He was fired. And of course, thankfully, a not-for-profit picked up his cause And they appealed. It went to a state appeals court. They ruled against him and for the school. It went to a liberal federal court. They ruled against him and for the school. And now it's going to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
this may be the biggest case for religious freedom that has come before the court ever. And sadly, though, it won't be resolved this year because the court's no longer in session. They've just finished this year's session. It'll be sometime in the fall before it's probably taken up. We'll keep our eye on it. But the saddest thing about it is, besides the obvious, I mean, the guy just wanted to drop to a knee. He wasn't proselytizing. He wasn't preaching to anybody. He wasn't trying to get anybody to think anything that he was espousing as good or against something that he was espousing being bad. He was just exercising his religious freedom and his right to speech. If the government is going to get that involved and go against all of our or any of our rights from our Bill of Rights, the First Ten Amendments of the Constitution, we're in for a tough time, folks. This is not the place Americans need to go. Another break, and on the other side of this, somebody you don't hear from often on this show, Morgan Freeman. Yep, I'm talking about the actor, guy from Memphis, African-American man that grew up in the hard stuff, and by any measure, he's been very successful in movies and is still producing them. Morgan Freeman is going to weigh in with uh, maybe a surprise news host, Don Lemon of CNN. Don't go away. You're going to enjoy this. That's up next. American Ladders and Scaffolds. Deal with the experts. Scaffolding, rental, and setup. Installation of truck racks, Lear truck caps, tonneau covers, and van shelving. Fall protection. Ladder and scaffold training and inspections. Little giant ladders. Custom access ladders and guardrails for commercial buildings. American Ladders and Scaffolds. Delivery everywhere, every day. American Ladders and Scaffolds. We take you higher. We take you higher. Nowadays, it's more important than ever to know the value of a dollar, or three, or four, or five, or even six. New Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. Tasty breakfast combos that give you more bang for your bucks. Get a wake-up wrap with sausage and a medium-hot coffee for $3. A bagel with cream cheese spread and a medium-hot coffee for $4. A bacon, egg, and cheese croissant with a medium-hot coffee for $5. Or a power breakfast sandwich and, you guessed it, a medium-hot coffee for $6. Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Exclusion supply, limited time offer. New home ownership can be a real eye-opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from The Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates, now at homedepot.com slash workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101, only at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at homedepot.com slash workshops. What happens when a young singer gets to cut a track with an R&B star? Yo! Or a young activist gets to chop it up with their hero? Oh, snap! You get McDonald's Black and Positively Golden Mentors, the series elevating the next generation of changemakers. Each episode, a must-see passing of the torch between the culture leaders of today and the young leaders of tomorrow. Check out Black and Positively Golden Mentors on Instagram at We Are Golden. Look out, world. We got it from here. While some compromise to be nice, others aggressively hold to the truth. Guess which one we are. TNN, the Truth News Network. Before we get to the Don Lemon, CNN, and Morgan Freeman back and forth, 
I got to point something out yesterday. I, I don't do it often, but after the show, I happened to be um, walking through our living room. The television was on. And um, the um, Amazon, not really Amazon, but Jeff Bezos rocket shot was being broadcast live. And I sat down for a few minutes. I got to be honest with you, folks. It was really cool. I mean... You know, we've watched as NASA through the years have gone through all the iterations of uh, space exploration and the rockets and, you know, the explosions, people burning to death and the explosion when uh, the space shuttle blew up. Horrors have happened, but a lot of good things have come from it. Space exploration just pretty much shut down for a number of years. But now, not with government money, but a lot of Amazon dollars, Jeff Bezos puts together this thing. And there were two big things that I couldn't believe. Number one, the rocket that carried this capsule they were in atop up to 66 miles up in the atmosphere. That's a long way, folks, 66 miles. The rocket itself came down. It looked like it was dropping straight down, and it landed on a pad at the facility in southwest Texas where it was shot off. That was a big deal to me. Normally in the past you saw them, you know, coming down the uh, the rocket would fall out of space in the ocean somewhere and the capsule would land under a, a parachute in the ocean and a ship would be there to go get the astronauts. Neither one of those things happened. The rocket landed and... Um, the capsule landed as well on the ground, and it went well. There were no problems, and this, I guess, was the first time that any private, not government, but private entity was successful at going that high up. Now, there was another shot that happened last week. Virgin Records guy, um, he did, and his looked kind of like a jet or an airplane. And they went up and went way up, way, way, way up, and not nearly as far as Bezos's capsule went up, 66,000 feet. So it was really cool. And I think it's kind of cool that Jeff Bezos is doing something like this. He hung it up as the CEO of Amazon. I don't know if you knew that, but he's out of that, and he's into space stuff now, and it's going to be interesting to watch. Now, in the midst of all of this, yesterday... When uh, all of the networks were covering this, it came to light something about NBC's Story Today show. Now remember, Barbara Walters, way back in the day, she was the anchor that really made this show take off and was one of the, if not the leading morning television show. It was a giant of morning television was today. But a collapse in viewership has happened there. And it has left the show, the Today Show, with its smallest audience in at least 30 years. And this came to light yesterday, right after this uh, space shot was broadcast live. I thought that was interesting, but I thought you would want to know that. Once again, media taking a shot, and it's because of their programming. Now, what programming would cause the Today Show to be hit like this? They are very, very far left on their morning show, the Today Show now. And Americans, folks, Americans are just getting tired of it. 
They just want facts. And you don't go to a left-leaning liberal newspaper, radio show, TV show. You just don't get it when it's far left. Americans get enough of it. And most Americans, in large, they've had enough and they just want facts. So they're going elsewhere. It's interesting right now to watch the ratings of the conservative outlets in radio and television and news uh, in written form watching what's happening for them. Their readership, their listenership, their viewership is climbing because of what is happening on the left. So we promised Don Lamont. I think that's the way he pronounces his last name. It's L-E-M-O-N. No disrespect, but I think it's Don Lemon and Morgan Freeman. Now, the pair, both African-American, Lamont makes it very clear that he is a black gay man. Morgan Freeman, an actor, From the South originally, somebody who lived through the horrors in the 60s and the 70s of severe racism. So naturally, the pair, they get on Don Lamont's show and they have the conversation about racism. And Don Lemon, as you know, is very, very hard left. He's into reparations. He's into white supremacy. He's into everything bad for black people, and we need to turn the tide and make things better for all black people at the expense of anybody that's not black. All of that rolled in. Morgan Freeman, by any measure, is a very successful actor, and uh, he does other things in the entertainment world. So Lamont starts this conversation by asking Freeman about racism. But it's hard to, when you say that to some people, because they say, oh, there you go with a pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing. And, you know, you're just being respectable. Not everybody can do that. Everybody can. Everybody doesn't. Courage. Courage is the key to life itself. There are a lot of people who are born in situations where I just, I'll never get out of this. So. They won't. I say to people who say, well, I I would like to have done so-and-so and so. So So you could have done it. So, well, I couldn't get out of here. Man, the bus runs every day. (laughs) (laughs) You're exactly right. Yeah. And Lemon wasn't finished. And Morgan wasn't either. I I thought what you said was fascinating because you called it bull when you said people can't, you know, pull themselves up. Do you think that race plays a part in wealth distribution or either a mindset that you can't Today? Or yeah. No. You don't? No. I don't. I don't. You and I, we're proof. Why would race have anything to do with it? Stick your, put your mind to what you want to do and go for that. Uh, it's kind of like religion to me. It's a good excuse for not getting there. You know, I said, it's probably get me in trouble, but I said to some of my colleagues recently, so I know that it's an issue, but I've been, it seems like every single day on television I'm talking about race and it's because of the news cycle, it's in the news, but I'm so, sometimes I get so tired of talking about it, I want to I wanna just go, this is over, can we move on? And, and, and if you talk about it, it exists. Right. Yeah. It's not like it exists and we refuse to talk about it, but making it a bigger issue than it needs to be is the problem we have. That's very interesting, that short back and forth between Morgan Freeman and Don Lemon about racism. And it wasn't so much about racism itself, it was about how Americans deal with the phraseology and the terminology that goes along 
with any conversation about racism. I got to be honest with you. Most regular Americans, they don't want to get into a public conversation about racism because the consensus is there is no way a person of color can be racist. But also now with the critical race theory conversation that's going and it's tearing our nation apart, there's no way that a white person cannot be racism. The current popular theology about racism is that if you're white, you're born as a racist. If you're black, you're born as someone who's oppressed, just automatically. That's the default position, and neither race can have any say-so about it. Morgan Freeman just confirmed as a very successful African-American man that started low, and he worked his way up to a very successful career and a financial uh, growth that makes him very wealthy. He's got the ability and he's got the permission to talk honestly about racism. And he did just that. And he just basically in a nice way at the beginning of that soundbite, he slapped Don Lemon in the face and said, it's BS. Racism and the way it's being used in America today is BS, according to an African-American giant, a rich guy. Who would know better than somebody that has made it? And that's another reason why I've always had a lot of respect for Dr. Ben Carson. He's probably still to this day the most successful, the more the most reputable surgeon on earth for doing brain surgery on kids. That's a big deal. He came out of the ghetto. He literally lived without a dad in his household, very poor family, welfare. He worked his way out of that and pushed his way to the top, actually ran for the presidency of the United States in 2016. How can racism keep somebody from doing that? The only way it can happen is if people let it happen. But if somebody that is depressed comes from a background that is depressed, Nobody, nobody with, with any kind of reason can make a, a justifiable claim that racism does not exist. It is here. It is everywhere. It has always existed in every culture, every social setting on planet Earth. Anytime there are people of different types. And when I say types, I'm talking about race. I'm talking about theology. Uh, I'm talking about ethnicity. I'm talking about languages. There are always people who want to somehow take differences, magnify the differences between people, and use those as weapons against people that are different from them. What are their reasons? What are their purposes? They're always there. They can be any one or any group of a multiple of things. What they are is not the egregious thing that happens. It's the fact that people use differences to benefit themselves against other people. That's what's evil. Well, speaking of Democrats, and we do that a little around here, don't you agree? Speaking of Democrats, guess what popped up yesterday? Overnight, in fact. There's a a very sharp, and specific comparison between Joe Biden and the Clintons. Now listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. 
in a communications backdoor that is just like what happened in Hillary Clinton's infamous private server. You remember that? She had a private server when she was Secretary of the State and against federal law and on an unsecured network. She communicated from her house to everybody in her life. And everything that she was doing on this server, all her emails that she were sending and all that were being received was open. And we found out later, according to the FBI, James Comey, he would never lie. Um, All of these emails were showing up on computer servers on the other side of the world. Well, now it has been revealed that President Biden used a personal email account during his term as vice president under Barack Obama. And Biden used this, listen, to send information he was getting from the State Department as vice president. And he was sending it to his globe-trotting, foreign deal-making son, Hunter. Messages that were sometimes signed, Dad, from the email account, robinware456 at gmail.com. R-O-B-I-N-W-A-R-E, the number is 456, at gmail.com. Those were found on a Hunter Biden laptop we talked about earlier that was seized by the FBI in December last year. I say last year, December of 2019. Some of the messages from the VP to Hunter were deeply personal. Others were political. And still others clearly addressed business matters. Whoa. Joe said he never communicated with his son about his son's personal business manage, uh, matters. And often were forwarding information that was coming from senior officials in the White House, from the State Department, and even some other government agencies. For instance, In late November of 2014, the U.S. Embassy in Istanbul, Turkey, sent an email to the State Department that was then forwarded to senior advisors to Joe Biden, including national security expert Michael Carpenter, and it provided an early alert that an American named Martin O'Connor was about to be released from detention in Turkey. The lead attorney for Mr. O'Connor reports that the court granted the detention appeal and he expected Mr. O'Connor to be released from jail today. This is in the email, barring any unforeseen problems. That was from the U.S. Embassy in Istanbul in an email that got forwarded to top Obama administration security and diplomacy officials, including current Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland. Mr. O'Connor will not be allowed to leave the country until his next hearing which is set for December 11th of 2014. The lawyer expressed confidence he'll be able to leave after that hearing. And the attorney is handling his release arrangements, pickup and temporary housing near his firm's office. Istanbul consular plans to speak with Mr. O'Connor after his release. So State Department officials forwarded that info to the VP, Joe Biden. And in Biden's old office, his aide, Colin Call, now President Biden's Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, sent it to Joe Biden's Gmail account. The VP then sent it to his son with the subject line, Forward, Mr. O'Connor being released from detention today. 
One former senior Obama administrator yesterday confirmed that some administration officials knew of that Robinware456 at Gmail email address for Joe Biden, and they used it from time to time. That official said, I saw it used to communicate with his family and his friends or to pass information to them. The emails show numerous Obama administration officials communicated or were in the know about the private email address. They had their information sent to it, including current Secretary of State Tony Blinken. In January of 2013, Blinken emailed Joe Biden at his private email recounting a colleague's conversation about the Pulitzer-winning journalist, author, and screenwriter Richard Ben Kramer's last minutes before he died. At the time, Blinken was Joe Biden's national security advisor. And I'm not going to go into what the email said, but here's, here's the big thing about all this, folks. We have people at the highest level in our government. And they all, they all signed in. They'd been lifers. Joe Biden had been in Congress for life. Bill and Hillary Clinton, I mean, President, Senator, Secretary of State, they knew what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And they knew why things were allowed and other things were not allowed. And once again, it goes back to that rule of law, rule of law. How can we live in a country that is supposedly a country of laws? The one thing that makes us the most different from any other country on earth is our rule of law, where everybody gets the same shake on everything. Yes, there have been times in history where laws were not enforced equally, that people of color were disenfranchised, and that people who are white always got the leg up when it came down to him versus him, and it was color that was different. We get that. But just because something doesn't work sometimes doesn't mean throw it out. A concept is good if the concept is fair, if it's legal. And what makes things legal? The only thing that makes things legal is when legislation is passed at whatever level it applies, local, state, or federal. Whatever legislation is passed and signed into law and becomes law, that has got to be kept protected. And if folks don't like it, there are processes to change it. But until that time, everybody must be held to the rule of law. And everybody who doesn't do that about one thing or about a thousand things, there are provisions in the law to hold those people accountable. Americans must insist that our authorities, especially today and especially at the federal level because it's being thrown in our faces over and over and over again. Certain people are getting a pass, a free pass, for breaking the laws, not because necessarily the laws are bad. It's because of who they are. If your name is Biden, if your name is Obama, if your name is Clinton, you get a free pass on lots of things that people with the last name like Newman or Trump certainly won't get a pass on, and you won't either. And you shouldn't. Nobody should. They shouldn't. Nobody is above the law. We hear that all the time, and of course, 
It comes primarily from people on the left who want to point out to conservatives. And at the top of that heap, of course, was Donald Trump. Nobody is above the law. Everybody's got to abide by the law, and that means everybody from the top down. That is true. And it applies to Democrats just like it does to Republicans. Hey, thank you so much for being here today. We unpacked a lot. But guess what? (laughs) There'll be a lot more to unpack tomorrow. So you guys have a great day. Enjoy your day. Really, I mean that. Enjoy your day. Put the bad stuff behind. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great one. So long.